Let me give my superhero look. Just so people know who the heck you're talking to. Jimmy Jam just entered the building, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, you know, when you come to interview Batman, you don't want to be interviewing uh, Bruce Wayne. Yeah, know? no, so definitely like, not. You know, you don't want to have Clark Kent. You want to have Superman. So I got yeah. to put the, the right stuff on. Let's go. I need an outfit. <laughs> Everybody who grew up with me, you know, I have always been like, That's the feeling, G. Go. Let's go. What is up, everybody? Welcome to the show. We have an incredible guest here for you today. A legend. Jimmy Jam is one of the most successful producers and songwriters of all time. Him and his partner, Terry Lewis, have been working together for 50 years. They have over 40 top 10 smashes and are still making hits today. They're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We talk a lot about partnerships, commitment, working with Janet Jackson, Michael Jackson, Boys to Men, Prince. Of course, we talk all about the time. It's a really incredible conversation, and I hope you love it. We recorded it live at Flight Time Studios, so I was super happy to just even be in the building. And as soon as I walked in the door, Jimmy and I just started talking, so the interview just goes. So this is the introduction. We're going to drop you right into us talking about anything that he wished he ever fixed from any of his past records. So I hope you enjoy it. This is Jimmy Jam. Let's go. Do you have anything that makes you want to be like, keeps you up? They're like, oh, God, I wish I could fix that. The one that comes to mind that's kind of funny is um, Escapade Janet. Yeah. Because the intention of that was when we would do Janet a lot of times, we would do the track just good enough for her to sing to, and then we'd fix it. And um, I remember that track literally is like, it might be two or three tracks. It's literally me playing the left hand bass. I'm playing a keyboard that's midied on my right hand. And I just kind of put it down as we were, as we were talking about the format of the song, I'm just kind of putting the song down, turn the drum machine on, play the song. And then I'm like, is that good enough to sing to? She said, yeah. And I said, okay, I'll go back and fix it later. I never fixed it. <laughs> and so literally, if you look at the stems or you look at the multi-track from that song, I remember we sent it out to get some remixes done. Yeah. And all the people said, all the DJs said, um, I think you sent us the work tape. You didn't send us the actual master because they wanted the drums all separated and they wanted all everything separated. And it was all like on two or three tracks. And I was right. Like, no, sorry, guys. That's, That's the way it was it. recorded. That's how we got it. Yeah. Yeah. So we never went back and fixed it. So there was some, there were some things like that. Not that that bugged me necessarily, but it was just kind of the intention of going back and doing it and just never, never going back and doing it. When you would record in general, but like, let's say with that song. Yeah. So you're laying down the tracks. Do, are you cutting scratch vocals if you're writing the song or? Yeah, I would yeah. always put, uh, <laughs> it, it would literally be blackmail vocals. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> not M-A-L-E, but M-A-I-L, blackmail. Yeah, yeah, yeah like, yeah. like if anybody heard these <laughs> vocals on these songs, oh my God. Be like, you know, we had a lot of respect for Jimmy Jam you know, until. Uh, yeah. You know, and but it was great because it it would make Janet really laugh, and really made really anybody who we would do it for. Um, the thing that happened with with that was, I would kind of do sort of a a vocal, and I would say kind of this is where I hear the melody. Yep. Sort of like this, and then it would be close to what it was supposed to be, but obviously you know you'd leave it up to the singer to interpret and do it their way that you know, whatever they think it should be, and. Uh, 
I just remember on those songs, uh, Janet would always hear it and laugh. The first thing she'd do was laugh. And then she'd go, oh, I like that. Yeah, okay, I get it. I get it. You know, and that so that happened a lot. But um, she could hear the song clearly. Well, she could hear she could hear the melody. She could hear what it was kind of what it was supposed to be. Yeah. And uh, it's funny because the person who has a bunch of those what I call blackmail tapes is uh, Questlove. Oh, yeah? Yeah. And he's like, hey, when you were doing the demo of this, whatever, and I'm like, and he'll play it, and I'll go, wait a minute, where'd you get that from? <laughs> and, so, and some of them were things that I actually, I sent him, yeah. that I didn't even remember that I sent him. And they were buried in and, there. Yeah. Muted. And it's like, yeah, my God, so funny. But oh, yeah, so that would, hap- that would happen a lot. But the thing we learned, and uh, this is, this, th- th- by the way, this is so funny to start a discussion talking about this, I know. of all things. <laughs> but, but, the, but the thing that we, we found out with demo vocals, basically, was that we would try to do, um, we, we did a song, we learned, uh, we did a song with Patti LaBelle. I think it was Patti LaBelle. It was either Gladys Knight or Patti LaBelle. I can't remember which one it was. And Anne Nesby from Sounds of Blackness did the demo vocal of the song. Mm-hmm. And when we played it for him, I think it was Gladys Knight. And she just said, oh, that sounds really good. Aunt you just go on and sing that herself. And we're like, what are you talking about? And she said, oh, she sounds really good on there. She should just, she should just sing it herself. We're like, no, that's crazy. What do you know? You're going to kill it. It's great. And I don't remember whether we actually did the song or not, but what it showed us was it doesn't matter whether you're Patti LaBelle or Gladys Knight or what level of singer you're at if you hear another singer killing the song, it's almost like you're listening to their song. Mm. So you have to leave room for the artist in there. Mm. And so what would happen is if I did the vocal on the song, cause I can't sing, they would hear the song and then their thought, the singer's thought would always be, Oh yeah, I get it. What he's okay. But I'm going to kill this. I'm going to kill this. I remember when we did on bended knee, I remember boys to men laughed. Cause I mean, I'm on there like, and they were funny because they said, literally they said, I know you don't expect us to sing it like this. <laughs> was it you singing? It, it was me singing, right? <laughs> so yeah. so like even like the one that always I laugh at it all the time is the second verse of On Bended Knee starts off, <clears throat> excuse me, listeners. It goes, uh, so many nights I dream of you on my pillow tight, I know. Right. So I'm yeah. singing it like that. And of course, not very good. And they, they laughed at me. And of course, now, if you go listen to Unbidden Knee, it is exactly what I sang, although sang well, yeah. you know? So I had the concept of what the melody should be. I just couldn't actually quite pull it off. Even the nuances and the inflections oh, and everything. Oh, I knew. Oh, yeah. I, yeah, I knew what it should be. And so and so that kind of thing happened all the time. Um, probably my, well, I don't know what's my most favorite, but probably the one that's the most impactful was when we did, uh, we worked with Barry White. And um, I did the demo for this song called uh, Come On. And I remember I'm on there and I'm like, yeah, baby. Uh, you know, when I'm trying to have the Barry White voice, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we play it for Barry. And we never called him Barry. We called him Mr. White. Oh, Mr. White. Mr. White. And uh, when the song went off, it was just kind of silence. And we said, uh, Mr. White, what do you think? And he just kind of looked at us for a second. And then he reared back with this huge laugh. He just said, ha, 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 sounds like me. <laughs> and it was the best, co- sounds like me. 
because that's what you want an artist to say. Yeah. And he went in, of course, and, and killed it and sang it, you know, but he loved it. And he loved that we made the attempt. We did that with Lionel too. We did a song called Don't Want to Lose You uh, for Lionel Richie. And we were trying to kind of evoke the Commodores uh, just to be close to you, mm. kind of that thing. And um, I'm on there, oh, girl. And I'm, I'm on there talking and all kind of crazy stuff. And Lionel did the same thing. He just kind of laughed and he said, man, I, I already wrote this song. <laughs> we were like, yeah, we know. And he said, but he get it. I get it. I get it. He said, I could never do that. He said, no, you hearing you do it, it's, it's, I love it. It's great. Wow. Said, but I, I could never do that because I already wrote that song. And uh, he killed it. it. It was great. So that, you, that was a thrill. That's, wow, that's amazing. That's an amazing superpower of yours to be able to do that and to put yourself in the mind of the artist and write a song for them that sounds like they wrote it to the point where when they hear it, they're like, that's my song. By the way, the, la the last one that pops into my mind is the Isley Brothers. So with the Isley Brothers, we did a song called, I think it was called You're All I Need. Mm. And I remember uh, Ernie, the guitar player, and Ron, the singer, walked into the studio. We put the track on. I hadn't actually demoed the vocal, but I knew what it should be, or I knew what I thought the melody should be for it. Yep. And I started singing, and I first, whatever the first line was, uh, like, I, I don't remember the lyric. I don't think we had even had a lyric yet, but it was just a da-da-da, da-da-da. And before I could get to the next line, Ron goes, da -da 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 -da, like that. And I was just like, oh, yeah, that's exactly what it's, what it's supposed to be. He was like, oh, yeah, yeah, give me the mic. I, I got it. Like, <laughs> and then Ernie goes, you guys got an acoustic guitar? And we said, yeah. And we, go, we give him an acoustic guitar, and he just goes and plays it. Without ever really hearing it, yeah. he just knew exactly what it was. Um, it, but we... We did our homework on acts, yep. you know, particularly ones that had legacy of music where you could really study and the things, and you could take the things that you really liked that they did mm. and try to put them into the song and make it feel comfortable for them. Yeah. And we always, it was one of the things we enjoyed doing, and we still enjoy doing that to this day. Yeah. You know, but we, I thought we were very good at doing that. And, and because it was all about making the artists have their own sound, not, not a Jam and Lewis sound, but really- right. The sound of the artist right. is the important thing. Still thinking about you going, oh, God, give me a reason. <laughs> oh, that's pretty good. A little, little vibrato. And I think you're in the, yeah, and I think you're actually in the right key. Dude, That's the that, that means the world. That's always the thing. <laughs> when people sing, I always notice whether they're in the right key. Because I don't have, what do they call it, perfect pitch? I don't yeah. have perfect pitch, but I have relative pitch. Like, yeah. I know where something is supposed to be. Yeah. When people sing it, so yeah, that's that's you're you're on it. How do you know when? Because there's definitely a Jam and Lewis like signature sound, especially of course it changes, yeah, through the decades. But how do you know when it's the kind of artist where you're like, I'm not going to push them too far into something else, but let's write something that's like right in their wheelhouse that would make them feel happy and sound still new and fresh, of course. But well, I'll I'll start off by saying I'm the king of the bad analogies. So there will be some analogies today that probably aren't going to be the best, but I try. Yeah. Um, so my analogy for what we do is always we're like tailors of a suit. Mm. Okay. Um, our whole idea with an artist is really that, you know, you can buy a suit off the rack. It's going to look great. You can, you know, take it in a little bit in the waist or whatever it is you need to do. And it's going to look great on you. But it's not, it's not going to be a suit that's custom made for you. So if you can go in and you can make that suit um, 
you can say, what's the material you like? What's the color you like? Um, you want a four button, a three button, a double breasted? Um, what kind of lapel do you like? Do you want cuffs on your pants? Uh, so on and so forth. By the time you get done, you have a suit that custom fits them. But the thing it has in common is the tailor sews a certain way, a certain way that they put a button on, a certain way that they do a, you know, a, a buttonhole here or whatever. So that's what Terry and I are. So there is, yes, there's a Jam and Lewis sound just like a tailor would have a certain way that he sews that mm. makes it the suits all the same. Um, but once again, the material and the color and all of those, the style, that's what changes. And so early on, I didn't realize how big of a deal it was because we didn't really know any better. But I remember our first kind of big hit was Just Be Good To Me by the SOS Band. Mm -hmm. And of course, the thing that happened after that was the record companies, when they came to us, they all said, give me one of those. Because that was always the thing. Give me something like that. And we'd go, no, we're going to do something different. But, you know, we think you'll like it. And I think probably one of the next hits we had was Encore by Cheryl Lynn, which went number one. And I remember it was a whole different drum machine, a whole different set of instruments we used on it. And I think we did a couple of other things. When we got back around to the SOS band, then we pulled out the 808 again and the Oberheim synthesizer. And they said, give us something like Just Be Good to Me. And we did a song called Just The Way You Like It. Because that was easy because, okay, yes, we can give them that sound again and kind of repeat that. But for everybody else, we wanted to give everybody their individual sounds so yeah. that nobody would hear something and go, oh, that's that somebody else could have done that song better or that sounds like you know somebody else. We wanted everybody to feel like it was their stuff. I love that. Yeah. Uh, first of all, pretty good analogy, got to say. You okay, did, thank you. you. So, you did, so far, so good? You did good there. All right. I'll, yeah. I'll, I should quit now then. <laughs> I'll probably have some other ones that won't be. We're here with Jimmy Jam. We just started talking immediately. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're a great storyteller, and I'm just sitting here like, tell me more. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um. Welcome everybody to the show. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, are we on? Are we taping? Oh shoot. We're okay. taping. There's oh, cameras man. here. I didn't, you know, I don't okay. always come All with right. them, but yeah, yeah, yeah. sometimes uh, we're here. We're in, we're in, I would say the new or what, eight years old flight time yeah. studio. Yep. LA, mm -hmm. LA flight time version two or three or. This is version. Yeah. The version. Two, well, yeah, sort of because uh, yeah, he could be version three actually because yeah. version one of flight time we actually called it flight time west when we did it because we were still living in minneapolis yeah was actually we were set up at the village studio oh okay and we had the whole which room we so we had the whole third floor no way so it was a so that it was, was flight time west yes so that was so it was kind of a it was kind of an evolution what happened was uh terry had started this around 2001 2002 something like that and terry had gone to la he had actually got a house in malibu and so he was spending a lot of time in L.A. He started working at the village. He said, Jam, you need to come out here, uh, you know, whatever, whatever. I was like, okay, cool. And I remember um, there was one little room that he always used. So I remember we asked um, uh, Jeff, the guy that runs the village, we said, what's on the third floor? And he said, oh, he said, we use it for storage pretty much. And we went up there, and there was a room that was just kind of there. It had a little vocal booth, and it was like a room. And we said, hey, can we use this room? Would it be possible to use this room for something? And he said, yeah, but there's not like a soundboard or anything in there. We said, no, no, no. We'll bring in like a little Pro Tools board or we'll just do something. But just, you know, we don't need tape machines and all that stuff. So he cleared everything out of there. I remember we put a big uh, rug on the floor. 
uh, we set up these, we had these PA speakers, these big JBL PA speakers. Yeah. And we set up shop in there and we started working on, um, who were we working with? Oh, uh, I think Usher was, might've been the first person we really? did there. And what was so cool about it, cause it was around, I want to say maybe it probably was confessions, I think was what we were working on around that time. But what I remember is whenever we would bring people in to play stuff, these speakers were so damn loud. And it was like being in the club. Like people <laughs> yes. were like, so they love people come, you know, coming over to do that. So then there was a little room behind that. And we said, hey, what's in that room? They said, oh, no. He said, oh, we can make that into something. So then we made that into a little studio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then there was a third room. And we said, what's this room? And he said, well, that was a studio or could be a studio, but half of the, that's my office basically. And we said, oh, we said, be cool to have that room. And he said, well, I could cut my office in half and you could have the other half of that. And he did. Wow. So like literally that was our whole kind of concept. So we had the whole third floor. We had a little kitchen up there and three rooms. And that was our first flight time. And then while that was happening, we were building what I guess would be the second flight time. Yeah. Which is in Santa Monica on uh, 18th on, and Olympic. On Olympic, yeah, yeah. Right? Um, which is now, it was Windmark. I think it's now called Penn Station. Mm-hmm. And if you go in there, people hit me all the time. I think Stargate was in there the other day. Yeah. And they hit me. Uh, they were like, wait, is it, did you guys build this studio? And we said, yeah, <laughs> because some of our little uh, logo stuff is still there, like so on the patch cool. bays and stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah so yeah. that was pretty cool. Um, so that was our second one. And then, uh, and then we, when we moved out of there, then we came out here. Yeah. And, uh, and basically it's a big warehouse space and we just basically can make it into whatever we kind of want it to be. So if you're watching on YouTube, you can at least see a uh, one wall of plaques, but this is like the entry room and we'll, when you walk into the to the main room, which we will go into maybe later in the episode, we can take a camera around and show you. But oh, you thought this is just a this is just a small fragment of the plaques. <laughs> <laughs> it's a forty foot wall of plaques. Yeah, and it is, but it feels so cool in here. It feels like a museum, but it also feels like uh, yeah, it has a warehouse vibe. It has this like basement vibe. You were saying yeah. right, like it, you yeah, can, it feels creative too. It doesn't feel like this like stereotypical. LA studio people that people that worked at our other place and they loved our other place uh, in Santa Monica, but coming out here, it's a, yeah, there's just a level of comfort because it feels like, I don't know the right way to explain it, but you know, there's a, there's that kind of made it sense where you look around and you go, Oh, we made it. Yeah. You know, this doesn't feel like we made it. Yeah. <laughs> this feels like we're making it. We're making we're it. F- we're figuring it out as we go. Love that. And I just feel like that's what we want because we enjoy looking at, I told you earlier that we, there was stuff on the, we didn't have stuff on the walls for the longest time mm. because it, that's like stuff we did. Yeah. <laughs> but like the song says, I know you used to do nice stuff, but what have you done for me lately? Yeah. So we're kind of like, uh, <clears throat> you know, John McClain, our, our good friend always said, uh, yesterday's uh, score doesn't count in today's game. So that's kind of what we live by. That's all nice. But we want to have walls that are empty that we can try to fill with if it's going to be other awards or, or whatever those are. Um, so that's the way we kind of look at it, I guess. I, it's really interesting because I feel like so many people, especially in L.A. or maybe it's a big city thing, but they they have the we've made it uh, mentality, even if they haven't made it and they're on their way there and they're faking it until they make it. Right, right, right. Do you think that the we made it mentality actually holds you back? Or did it for? I think I think it I think it can, and I'll I'll tell you I'll I'll go way back to the very beginning yeah. with us. We you know a lot of times 
success is is uh, comes through adversity. It, it comes through the things that you go through that you really don't know why they're happening, but they're teaching you a lesson and they're preparing you for things that are going to happen in the future. Yeah. And I will say growing up in Minneapolis, which was probably, when we were growing up there, Terry and myself, was probably about three or 4% black. Mm. And there were tons of white clubs that had R&B bands that were all white. They wouldn't allow us as black guys to play in the club. Mm. And so what that did was it made us put our, you know, if you will, our entrepreneurial hats on. And so I remember we uh, went to this hotel uh, ballroom. I think it was called the Dykeman Hotel. And it was basically a hotel that was, I think, condemned. They were going to tear it down. And um, we said, hey, your ballroom is open, right? And they said, yeah. And we said, so let's do a deal. Uh, We'll take the door. I think we charged three bucks at the door or something like that. You guys take all the liquor sales because you're going to sell all the liquor. And uh, we'll get flyers and put them on people's cars at all the clubs and stuff. They won't let us play at their clubs and we'll get everybody down here and we'll see what happens. And so we got the radio station involved and, you know, a bunch of people. And I remember the very first weekend we were down there, I think we drew like 1500 people. Meanwhile, the clubs are all sitting empty. And so they're going, it's a lot of people. Yeah, no, it was, it was, it was, it was crazy. We, yeah. we, we had no idea it was going to be like that, but yeah. it showed that there was an appetite for, sure. for music. For sure. And, um, Anyway, I remember the clubs were all sent empty and the club owners were all going, wait, where's everybody at? And they said, oh, they're down at the uh, hotel uh, watching the band you wouldn't hire. So then we started getting offers, you know, to come play at the band, you know, come play at our club. And we were like, no, we're good. We're good. And so that's, that's what we did for a really long time. So that adversity really taught us that it wasn't about just having the talent to play. But sometimes you had to find the place to play. Like people talk about, you know, you want a seat at the table. Sometimes there's not a table, so build the table. Mm. You know, I I think that that's kind of the mentality we've always had. So the made it idea for us never really entered our minds. Um, We just never felt that. Even even we, I was talking to somebody the other day about, uh, they were like Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Don't you feel you made it? And I'm like, no, I feel like that is... When we get an award like that, I feel like that means we got to prove we really deserve that award. And if anything, it's a platform to try to do more things. Yeah. Um, but that's just kind of our always been our mentality, and and certainly Terry's mentality also. We are making it. Yeah. Not we made it because there's. I'm living that forever. That's yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it's Man. a it's a it's a journey. Terry Terry always says that you know it's a journey. And there's a destination, I guess, that you're looking for, but you never really want to reach it because when you when you reach your destination, then what do you do? Yeah. So it's really about the journey um, is the most important part of it. And we just are really enjoying each section of it. And we're at the point of our careers now where uh, it's, you know, the question gets asked, what haven't you done yeah. that you still want to do? And there's so many things, yeah. you know? So yeah. that to me is, if you if you have... A purpose and you have, our purpose is to leave music in a better place. That's our overall purpose. We don't know exactly what that means or what that looks like, but we know that that's our purpose. That's our mission statement or whatever you want to call it. How we go about doing it is the interesting thing. And that's why you wake up every day. And I feel like when we wake up every day, it's like a chance to do something, Mm -hmm. to, to create a song, to create a memory, to 
put a smile on somebody's faces. Like that's the way we look at it when we wake up. Yeah. And uh, that's, uh, I don't know, it's such a blessing to be able to do that and to do it with such talented people. Yeah, you know, which is the chance we get every day. So Appreciating what fortunate. you have, being present, and and just knowing that you're blessed every day and you have the opportunity every day. And it's important when you get old to have things to look forward to. I yeah. think a lot of times, I watch, my dad's a great example now. My dad just turned 96. Amazing. He plays a couple times a week, still gigs, still plays. Uh, and it's because he has something to look forward to. Yeah. Like, it's like, you know, I, I call him and I'll go, what are you playing this weekend? Oh, I'm playing at so-and-so club this weekend. You know, it's like. You can get around and gig? That's amazing. He gets around and gigs. Long, so we'll not make a long story short, but yeah. he turned 95 last year. Now, we had been estranged for, I had been estranged from my dad for probably almost 50 years. Wow. And for various reasons. And, but through COVID and a bunch of different kind of circumstances that came, that happened, um, we reconnected. And um, he's actually, there's a book being done on him. Uh, there's an author, Andrea Swenson, who did a book uh, called uh, Must Be Something Here. That's about the Minneapolis sound, about the mm. Minneapolis music scene. But she called me and she said, I'm going to do one on your dad. And would you like to uh, zoom in when I come visit him uh, and try to piece together some memories and that kind of stuff? And that's a kind of how the journey started. Anyway, for his birthday last year, he wanted me to come up and play with him. And I, he was, my first gig was playing drums for my dad's band. That was my very first professional gig when I was like 12, 13 yeah, years old. Yeah, so young. Yeah. So anyway, I went up and played with him and it was amazing and we documented it and it was, it was great. And then I had the tape put together and, and send it to him for a Father's Day uh, present. And we've been in touch ever since then. So this year Love I that. went up and surprised him for his 96. He didn't know I was coming, but I knew he was playing a gig and so I flew up, and I was actually going also to the Minnesota Timberwolves game because they had, <laughs> they invited me when we played the Nuggets. We we got one victory against the Nuggets, and it was the game I was at, which was nice, kind of cool. But uh, <laughs> you brought but, the spirit, yeah, we brought the spirit, and and that was great. But yeah, it was it was great, and it, it was a great surprise. I didn't play with him; I just I just watched his gig, which yeah, is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, it's just about having things to look forward to. Mm. I mean, it's the thing that keeps us going, and I think as you get older, it's important to make sure that. Uh, you know, our our older folks have something in their lives to look forward to. Oh man, I, I resonate with that a lot. My grandma just turned ninety five last week. We did her her ninety fifth at my uh, at my house, and it was awesome. And it was awesome. And and the thing that she has to look forward to is just our family get-togethers. Yes, and I wish there was more. So it's so great that your dad has that purpose and yeah. thing in his life. It's it, it's just important because to me it, it keeps you alive, and I yeah. think that's what. It, it keeps you living. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Meaning that, you know, because being alive is one thing. Living is living. another thing. Yes. You know? Yes. And I think that's the thing that's important. Man. So now, I mean, I know you were a, a big liner notes guy, like growing up. Huge. <laughs> Huge. Yeah. And now as we sit in front of massive plaque walls everywhere and like, how does it feel to you to be like from you were growing up reading so many credits, trying to see the through line of who made what and this did this. And, and now you're in the songwriter hall of fame and you have, you guys are the most successful production team and all this stuff. Like, and to think about whether it's liner notes and vinyls or whether it's a show info on Spotify or whatever it is, like, how does that feel for you now to be knowing that you are that guy and you, there's all these other people that are reading about you and trying to be inspired by your creations. Wow. Um, that's an interesting question. Um, 
I don't really realize it until I talk to, like there's certain people that can really articulate. Because for us, we're just doing, we're just going about doing what we do. Yeah. We don't think of it necessarily as anything special until we talk to someone who we've influenced, who's able to really express it. Mm. Um, one of the people I talk to a lot is Maxwell. Mm. And it's funny because Maxwell, I remember, uh, did a remix of Ascension, his very first uh, big hit. Yeah, And he literally took the, a song from the SOS band called No One's Gonna Love You. He basically just took the track and re-sang his song over the top of it. And I remember hearing it just kind of randomly one day. And I ran into him, I want to say at the forum or somewhere. It was a while back. And I just mentioned to him, I said, I love that remix you did. And he said, oh, my God. He said, that song was amazing. He said, I just wanted to do, I just did it on my own. I didn't even, you know, the record company wasn't involved or whatever. And anyway, we struck up a conversation. But he was able to articulate how, you know, what our influence was on him, on his writing style, his production style. And when you talk to people like that where it really means something to them, I, I think that that's maybe when you feel like, wow, okay, that's that's pretty cool mm. um, for that moment. And then you get you go back to work. You're like, okay, well, let, you know, I fooled him on that one. So let's, let's figure it out what we can do on the next thing. But I remember talking to, um, I do a show on Sirius XM, the Jimmy Jam show. Yeah. And I remember talking to Barry Gordy. And I remember they told us, uh, they said, you know, you're going to get maybe an hour with him. And we ended up getting about two and a half hours and and he had an appointment. Otherwise they said he would still be there. Yeah. But it was because <laughs> you were able to articulate your appreciation yeah. of what he did. Yeah. And I remember at the end of the interview, he said, you know more about Motown than I do. Wow. <laughs> and I said, well, I, I appreciate the compliment, but literally um, it was funny because when I walked in, we did it at his house. And I remember when I walked in, there's this big, I think it's called the Michael Jackson Opus is what it's called. It's this huge red book that has, um, you know, pictures and stories and the whole thing. Well, there's a picture and kind of in the center of the book, there's a picture of me and Michael from the Scream video. And on the page adjacent to it is the Jackson 5 album, uh, Dinah Ross Presents the Jackson 5. Yeah. And I tell this whole story about how that album was so influenced me because I was in fourth grade and I was 10 years old. And to see somebody, Michael Jackson, my age, doing music, opened the whole door for me. I was like, oh, wait a minute. Oh, wait, he's doing that at 10 years old? I'm 10 years old? I can do that, you know, was always my thought. And anyway, I had told that story to Barry before, but the fact that he had the book, I just opened it to the page and I said, this is the story I'm telling you about. And he just went, Oh my God, you know? So I think knowing the, um, and I also told him about the Holland Dozier Holland, uh, or the Supreme sing Holland Dozier Holland, Mm -hmm. that gold record cover, that that was my introduction to the idea of songwriters because we were at like a family reunion or we were at some sort of thing. And I remember that album was playing and I remember looking at the cover and to me, Holland was a country. Like I didn't know what, how, and I said to my dad, I said, what does this mean, Holland Dozier Holland? And he said, those are the songwriters. And I said, the songwriters? And he said, yeah. He said, when you look at a single, a seven-inch single, in parentheses are names. Those are the guys that wrote the song. Mm. So when we talk about liner notes and that, 
that was my whole thing. The whole idea that somebody wrote the song, yeah. different than who's singing the song. And from then on, I was a fan of writers and producers and engineers and that. And so yeah. like literally that was like my education was that album cover. And unfortunately, when we lost uh, Lamont Dozier this past year, I um, I actually hosted a uh, sort of a tribute to him at the Grammy mm -hmm. Museum. And I, when I came up to speak, I told him, put that album cover up there. And I'm going to tell the story about that, about That's how beautiful. influential that was in my life. Oh, so, that's amazing. Yeah. It's cool. So you're amazing at partnerships. Like you've, you're 50 years with yes, Terry Lewis. Yes. And I mean, your long career with, with Janet and even being married for so long, everything, you're really good at partnerships. Like what advice could you give on, on building long lasting, fruitful partnerships? Well, those are great examples to me of, of great partners. So first of all, you need a great partner because you don't, you don't do it by yourself. I can yeah. tell you that. I mean, it is about, uh, partnerships are really about give and take and all those kinds of things. Um, they're each unique in, in their own way. I mean, obviously the Terry Lewis relationship is the most significant relationship of my life. Mm. Um, we met, yeah, 50 years ago this year. Uh, and I, when I saw Terry, it was like love at first sight. Because he was sitting on his bed in this dorm. We were at the University of Minnesota, but we were just junior high school students at the time in a summer school program. And I remember he was sitting on his bed playing this red, black, and green bass. And he was playing Cool in the Gang bass parts. And I loved Cool in the Gang. Yeah. And I just said, I got to get to know him. And then he heard me playing in the lunchroom because they had stored a bunch of pianos in the lunchroom. So I would go down there and play. And allegedly, as he tells the story, there's always a bunch of girls around. I don't know whether that was true or not. <laughs> Uh, I hope it was, but I, I don't know. Uh, but anyway, he heard me play and he says, oh, I got to get to know him. And that started our relationship. And what happened over the years is, is really something kind of simple. I mean, it's simple to us, I guess, was that we tell people that we've never had an argument and people go, what do you mean you never, how could that happen? You never had an argument. I said, and I always articulate it like this. An argument is something you're trying to win. Mm. So if I win an argument against Terry, that means he loses and why would I want my partner to lose at anything, particularly something that I'm involved with? But if you change the idea of an argument, something you're trying to win, to a disagreement, a disagreement is something you're trying to solve. So if you have two different points of view, but you're trying to get to a conclusion or get to, a, you know, to the best way, then to me it's not about whether it's my way or his way. It's about what's the best way to get there. Um, so I think in that case, I think it's kind of, not, if you agree on what the destination is, you agree with where you're trying to go. Usually the disagreement is how you get there, mm -hmm. you know? And I used to say that back when, um, well, back when I was chairman of the recording Academy, I talked to somebody earlier today cause, uh, they're in the boardroom right now doing some things. And they said to me, you were a great chairman, but, uh, but I think the reason that I was was because I would always try to find the common ground between when people would be into arguments or whatever, and they'd have two different sides of something. I was always pretty good at pointing out, actually, here's where you share the same, uh, the same thought. And it could be something as generic as you're both passionate about this. Yeah. Right. So, and I would, I would, I would say something like, well, so take your passion and instead of arguing it in front of 40 people in a boardroom, Go have a drink after. I will point out to you that your destination's the same. And I think in that in one of those cases it was we were trying to give some grant money for something. Yeah. 
And it was like, they both agreed we should give the grant money, but they disagreed how we should do it. And I said, so that to me is like, let's, we're taking a trip to, uh, uh, to the zoo. How do we get there? Are we going to take the train? Are we going to take a bus? Are we going to drive? Are we going to Uber? We're going to take the tunnel. Are we going to like, it doesn't matter. Let's get to the zoo. That's what we want to do. We'll figure out the best way to do it. And of course the next day I remember in the boardroom, they had come to a conclusion and everybody, uh, you know, everybody accepted it and, and it passed unanimously. And, and they thanked me afterwards. They said, thank you for pointing out to us. Instead of concentrating on our differences, you found a common thing that we had. Mm-hmm. So I say that to say that that's kind of the way Terry and I work. Yeah. And, I, and the other thing in our partnership that's interesting is, as I sit here, and Terry's not here, but Terry's always with me anyway. Yeah. Um, did you see the, you saw the Beatles documentary, right? The, the anthology? The, the, yeah, the big long, the yeah. six oh, hour, yeah. eight hour, whatever it was. Oh, yeah. So the thing that struck me about that that was interesting was, in my mind, Lennon and McCartney were sitting in a room together creating. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't what it was. Sometimes Paul would do something totally on his own. Sometimes John would do something totally on his own. But at the end of the day, it was always Lennon and McCartney. Yeah. And so they were together, but they were individuals who were, they were together in their individuality, I guess yeah. you could say. Yeah. That's the way Terry and I are. We have different interests. We have different types of music that we feel really speak to us. Uh, we have different artists we work with that we have really close relationships with. There's some artists that I swear to God, if you said, what does, uh, if you say, what does Jimmy do? And, and, and they go, I didn't never see Jimmy. It's, I only see Terry, you know, or they, or vice versa, according to who the artist is. Right. Um, but at the end of the day, it's always Jam and Lewis. Yeah. And we shook hands 50-50. We said 50-50. Well, that took away creatively all of the uh, disagreements you would have. Right. Like, well, that's my title. Well, that's my verse. Well, that's my melody. Well, that's my, you know, why are you breaking songs down like that? No, 50-50. So there's songs. Team. Yeah. We're on the same team. There's a, there's, there's songs that are a hundred percent Terry wrote them and did everything. And I hear it when it's on the radio or when it comes out, you know, and I go, man, that sounds really good. And I got 50% of it. So what, what do I care? Um, it's been a, it's been wow. a, I remember talking to LA and Babyface about that long time ago, back when people thought we were enemies Yeah, and we'd go out to dinner together and people would go, wait, aren't you LA and Babyface? <laughs> aren't you Jimmy and Terry? Yeah. And y'all having dinner together? We said, yeah, you know. Um, but I remember their their thing was we had a conversation and it was about the percentages and, and all of that. And we said, we don't do percentages. Yeah. We just It's just 50-50. Yeah. And we're not telling you guys that's what you need to do, but we're just telling you that's what works for us. That's what we decided. Because in the long run, it all balances out, you know. Um, there's times where Terry uh, – you know, isn't feeling an idea or it isn't coming up with anything and he'll like go to Disneyland or something. Like he'll, he'll be like, I just need to go ride a roller coaster or something and, and, and clear my clear mind or whatever. Um, and then there's the same thing with me. There's times where Terry will go, man, you got something for so, such and such an artist. And I'll be like, I'm not feeling anything. I said, okay, let me, let me try to figure it out. Um, but anyway, we just, it all kind of works out together because we look at it like that, you know, where, where it is a true partnership. And we're happy for each other. And we love what each other loves. Yeah. Um, you know, when we, think about when we, so when we started off, I was a pop music guy. So I was 
Chicago, Seals and Crofts, America. Like that was my sweet spot, right? Anything with major seventh chords, I yeah. was <laughs> that was my thing, right? Terry was Parliament Funkadelic, uh, Tower of Power, New Birth. Um, that was his sweet spot. And so when we got together and I said to him, I'm going to the record store to get the new Chicago album. And he was like, huh? <laughs> and he said, what about New Birth? What about Tower of Power? What about Earth, Wind, and Fire? And I was like, I hadn't heard of them. I was like, oh, I don't know them. And so that was kind of the way we got together. And so we realized that it, we we both were going to love what we loved. Yeah. But I was going to love what Terry loved because he loved that, because he loved it. Yeah. He was going to love what I loved because I loved it. And that was sort of the foundation that was set in our in our relationship. It's amazing that the foundation was set there, but also as you guys evolved and success comes and goes and life comes and goes and everything, you've, you've maintained it. Yeah. That's, that's the even crazy part. It's like, okay, it's beautiful to have a 50, 50 equal partnership where you support each other and you trust each other and you want the best for each other. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. But then for, as you, growing. I mean, it could easily be like some ego comes or the wrong person enters your life that pulls you into this, this or that. But the fact that 50 years in and you're still right here creating together, you making have, it. <clears throat> by the way, you have to, as you mentioned that, you have to be careful of the people that you let into your life. Yeah. There were people that wanted to partner with us on different things over the years and, yeah. and still today. Yeah. And we're kind of like, well, yeah, we can do something together, but we're not really a partner. Because the partner, I remember early on when Terry and I first came to LA and we didn't have a car, we didn't we had a place to stay cuz we were staying with some friends of ours from Minneapolis. And in this little room probably about about the size of this, we had two cots in there and that was it. That was our beds. Um and that was the partnership. And so anybody else that came into it that said, hey, we want to do some stuff and whatever, be like, oh, yeah, no, we can definitely do some stuff. But not, you're not a partner. The partner, has al the partner part has already been established. Yeah. And um, I, I just think that it's important not to let people in that have agendas, have yeah. their own agendas. And, you know, just be wary of it. Yeah. You know, because um, that can be dangerous. That can be really dangerous. You must be really good at saying no. No is a good thing. And well, you know what? Although I will say, we say no, but I, I'd almost say no with an asterisk because our thing is, particularly as it relates to um, projects, mm -hmm. a lot of times we will say no, but it won't be just a no. It'll be a no, or we'll say maybe we, we don't feel we're the right people for it or we're the best people for it. But we'll say, but you know who would be really good? Because a lot of times we'll try to have that thought. And uh, I was talking about this the other day to somebody, uh, narrative Michael Walden. So Clive had us fly to L.A., or excuse me, to New York, and he wanted us to work on Aretha Franklin record. And um, he told us kind of the concept and what he was trying to do, and we said, okay, who else is producing on the record? And he named some people. Mm -hmm. And then he goes, and there's this young this young kid, uh, narrative Michael Walden. And we said, Oh, he's the one, he's the one. And, and Clive goes, well, he's kind of untested and he's kind of, you know, in Clive's way. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And we said, no, 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 no. He's, he's the one. And so we ended up not doing anything because Clive's th whole thing was do a demo. And we were like, Clive, we don't do demos. Yeah. It's been like a running joke for us for, with Clive for 30 years, probably. 
with Whitney, with everybody down the line. We said, no, we don't do demos. Just put us in there with the artists and let us figure it out. Yeah. So um, anyway, I remember a few months later, I'm watching MTV or whatever. I see Freeway of Love come on. I see Nerida on the drums. And I said, yep, Nerida Michael Walden. And every time I see Nerida, he gives me a hug and he goes, thank you. Nice. You know, because of course he went on to do Whitney and all, all the great records. But we just knew. So that we've done that a lot of times with people. Um, I mean, there's a, there was a group called ABC. After we did Human League, I remember a lot mm. of the British groups started come, coming to try to do some things. And there was a group ABC. And I remember we met them over at the A&M lot. And they said, we want you guys to produce, you know, our record. And we were like, okay. And they said, we have this one record. Can we play you this record and, and tell us what we should do? And we said, okay, cool. They put the record on. Four minutes later, <laughs> Terry said, I got four words for you. And they said, what? He said, put that shit out. <laughs> and they said, huh? He said, put that shit out. He said, I don't know what you want us to do with it. That song's done. That song's put that out. I'll go to the record store and buy it right now. That song was called How to Be a Millionaire. And it would end up being a, a, a big hit for them. But a lot of times it's like, you don't need us on this. Um, I, I probably, the, probably the best story is uh, Pink. So we did this soundtrack with, and it shows you how thing, how life happens, right? Yeah. We did this soundtrack for Kazam, which was uh, Shaquille O'Neal's movie. Yeah. He was a genie. I right? remember. Okay. <laughs> so- the movie didn't really do anything. The soundtrack didn't really do anything. But the, what the soundtrack did is it introduced us to Usher because we had Usher on the soundtrack. Uh, it introduced us to uh, Boys to Men because we had a song with, uh, we wanted Boys to Men, but we ended up, we could only get one of them. So we got Nathan uh, to do a song for that soundtrack. And there was a girl group called Choice on the soundtrack. And I remember we heard, because we had a couple spots that we could put in. And we heard the Choice record, and I remember we said, who's singing? And they said, it's a girl named Alicia, whatever, whatever. We said, let's sign her. And we didn't realize that Alicia was Pink, because Pink's record hadn't come out yet. Yeah. But L.A. and Babyface had signed her. So anyway, she came out. Obviously, the first record was huge, triple platinum album, yeah. huge thing. So she started working on the next album. And uh, Roger Davies was managing her. And Roger Davies, you know, rest in peace, uh, managed Tina Turner, yeah. Cher, uh, Sade. Like he had the whole, you know, Janet. He had the whole crew of people, right? And I remember he said, uh, he said, hey, can you do something on Pink's album? And we said, sure, what do you need? And he said, well, she's kind of gone in a different direction and um, LA's a little, LA Reed is a little concerned, you know, whatever, whatever. So she comes to Minneapolis and we write a song that actually was a, a pretty cool little song. And then we said to her, well, what, what do you need us for? You know, you obviously sound like you got good. And she said, well, play, I'll play you some stuff and let me know what you think. So she played her record for us. Right. And basically the same thing we said to ABC, like, put that out. Like, mm. what, what do you, like, what do you need us for? And she said, well, cause it's such a departure from the other stuff that I did and I don't want to lose my audience and whatever. And I said, no. I said, I, I said, so what do you need? And she said, I don't know. She said, LA is just a little whatever. I said, let me give him a call. 
So I called L.A. Reed and I said, okay, L.A., I want you to take off your record company hat for a second. And let me just give you two examples of, because he said, how's it going with Pink? And I said, oh, we're done. And he says, you're done. And I said, yeah. I said, you don't need us. He said, what do you mean? And I said, okay, here's my example. I said, so there was a young lady in Canada, had some pop hits, was doing well, you know, making some good records. I said, she came to the States. She made a record called Jagged Little Pill. He said, Alanis Morissette. And I said, yeah. He said, wow. He said, okay. And I said, then there was another gentleman who we all know very well who had a, you know, double platinum album, number one R&B record, top 10 single, uh, you know, pop record. And I said, the next album he did, he put on, uh, you know, leg warmers and uh, bikini shorts and a trench coat. And he said, Prince? And I said, yeah, Dirty Mind. He said, yeah. He said, so wait a minute, you think Pink is Prince and Alanis Morissette? And I said, yes, I do. I said, and... But here, now put your record company hat on. You have your first single. And he said, which, which one? And I said, get the party started. Mm. I said, because get the party started will appeal to the fan she already has. Mm. But it will also move her towards the Linda Perry stuff that she's in the direction she's going. Yeah. I said, so to me, you got, all, you got the best of both worlds. Wow. And so once again, so about two or three months later, because we've at that point, you know, you kind of check out. There's no really, there's not really an internet happening. There's really not, you know, there's not social media. So you can't really keep up on the day to day. So about two or three months later, we start getting a bunch of phone calls. And they said, people would go, what did you guys do on the Pink album? And we said, we didn't do anything on the album. And they go, well, she thanks you. She says, it's like, thank you, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis and whatever. And I said, oh, yeah, we made a phone call. <laughs> so... Anyway, phone call that changed the trajectory and yes. pushed her in the right direction. Yes. Yeah. So, so that, so what, the idea of no, we try to not leave it at no. Yeah. We try to to say, but here's who we think would be really good for this. That's amazing. And we've probably done that as much as I mean, we've done that a lot. There's a yeah. whole lot of people I could I could tell you from Black Eyed Peas to Missy Elliott to. Uh, Jill Scott to, to people over the years where it just, for some reason it hasn't necessarily worked. Yolanda Adams, yeah. who we tried to sign yeah. uh, and Sylvia Roan signed her and said, you still want to work with her? We said, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, and it, it all worked out really yeah, well. It definitely worked out. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of those. Wow. I love that. Cause you're still, you're still contributing. Yes. Which is, which is important to me because sometimes it is, it's just a phone call or it's just a, just a mention to somebody yeah. that, oh, by the way, I heard this the other day. This I thought this was pretty cool. Yeah, Zane Lowe sent me something uh, yesterday or d- day before yesterday. He just sent it randomly and just said, I, I really like this. What do you think? And uh, I listened to it and I loved it. I said, this is really good. And then I said, but who wrote the liner notes for the, uh, on Apple Music, who wrote the little liner notes for this? I said, because whoever wrote this articulated the sound better than I could explain it why I like the record mm. they articulated. And so he hit me back today and he said, I'll get you who I'll find out who did it. Yeah. Cause it's really good. But I'm interested in that. I'm interested in creative folks really on, in all aspects, because to me, it, it's always that team of people that makes it good. Yeah. You know? And I think the convenience of, you know, being able to say, Hey, Siri play such and such. The convenience of it is great. But the fact that you're not really putting any effort into it to actually go to the store and buy it or to look through records or to, you know, to me takes a little of the importance away from it. Mm. And it also takes away that there's a whole infrastructure of people that make it 
happen. Yeah. I, I've, I've had conversations with, uh, over the years with, you know, with Drake, with, with Frank Ocean, with Weekend, uh, who have, you know, at, at various times that they just pull themselves out of the Grammy process. Mm. And while that's certainly their choice to do that, uh, I remember a few years back, I remember giving, I, I love, I, I do the, the premier telecast and I give awards out, yeah. which I love, right? And I remember giving some to uh, some of Drake's collaborators on some stuff and it was like greatest night of their life. And Drake didn't come that year and he, he was mad at the category he was in or whatever. And it's like, Drake, I said, I get totally get that. But I said, I just gave a Grammy to like some really happy collaborators of yours. Yeah. It had like made their night. And so sometimes it's not about, yes, the artist can pull themselves out of it, but then when you pull yourself out, you're pulling the engineers and producers and writers and food runners and Everyone studios. Everyone else that contributes to Everybody yeah. else. And I just yeah. think, I, I just think, think about, if you want to do it, that's fine. But I do think I want to put it on people's mind to think about it because yeah. it's a team effort to get that record done. And it may be the most significant thing in their lives is that nomination, even if they don't win, but just that nomination or being Grammy nominated means so much to people. And I remember I saw Drake the year after and he won for something and he gave me the biggest hug backstage and just, and same thing, just said, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for, yeah. for, for saying that. Kind of yeah. opening, opening his eyes. Yeah. yeah. Cause yeah, I mean, you can get in your head as an artist or think that it's you or whatever it may be, or as a CEO or as a whatever, whatever yes. it is when you're at the, you know, the top of your little world that you create. Absolutely. But it's important to always realize that, yeah, everyone that's on your team is working just as hard at whatever their contribution is. And it's their entire lives too. It's yes. everyone's lives Yes, that they're spending all in. So it's like, even, yeah, even if you're like, oh, I'm annoyed. Yes. You know, you could be like, okay, but, but I will choose to do this for you. Yeah, or whatever it may be, or just to give them the the award or the reward or whatever it may be. That's that's what it is to me. It's it's just kind of sharing <clears throat> the success because yeah, you at the end of the day, yeah, you're the star, and I totally get that. But think about any sort of team mm -hmm. situation. I mean, you know, we're in the NBA playoffs now, and you know, there's obviously the star of the team. Yeah, but you're not going anywhere without that coaching staff, without no those you know the the massage guys, the yep. everybody therapists and everything. Yes. Yeah. And it's so important that yeah. they, and they don't necessarily get the recognition uh, or even the big bucks and stuff, but yeah. they contribute to making you the star that you are. Yeah. And I think it's important to acknowledge those people whenever possible. And yeah. one little small thing that happened this year at the Grammys I was so happy about was, um, and I don't know whether I, oh yeah, we do have it. And, and, and when we go around, I'll, sh I'll show it on camera. But so Benny Medina, Back when we won Producer of the Year, uh, back in 19, uh, for the year 1986. Yeah. And we won Producer of the Year. And I remember a few weeks later, because it takes a while to get your Grammy. Yeah. It takes three, four months before you actually get your physical Grammy. But he had the envelope framed that actually held, uh, that uh, it was Brian Wilson and uh, Michael McDonald actually presented. Wow. The Grammy that year. Wow. And he had the envelope framed and put in a plexiglass thing, and I thought it was so cool. Yeah. So whenever I would give a Grammy out, I would always ha hand the envelope to somebody in the group, and I'd just go frame that. No, oh, I love that. And so, um, and I remember for the longest time, they would go, just, you know, just hand us the envelope back. And it's like, for what? For what? Like, this really means something. Yeah. This year, officially, when I went out to uh, present, they said, give the envelope to someone in the thing officially. And I, I was like, great. Because I've been advocating for that for probably 10 years. That's so <laughs> cool. Know? 
So it's great. And people now have sent me pictures of them, you know, they framed it or they've, you know, it's, it's such a, an amazing moment. Yeah. You know? So it's a great keepsake. That's a have. beautiful thing to push forward for forever. Yeah, exactly. With, with Janet, what is it like to create such a special bond with an artist? I think the bond you create with an artist is the most intimate bond you can possibly have, you know, other than maybe with a loved one, but in some ways uh, maybe even more intimate because it's the trust factor is so important. I think the thing that we've, when people think about record production, for instance, I think the thing you think about is, um, you know, equipment choices or, you know, you think about the technical side of things. Mm -hmm. I think what's much, I won't say more important, but goes hand in hand with that is the psychology of it, the psychiatry of it, the therapy of it. Because you're in order to get that best performance out of someone, which is to me the, you know, the mark of any great producer is to draw a great performance out of someone. Yeah. Um, whether it's on their instrument or whether it's, you know, in their singing or whatever. I think that uh, you have to have the trust where, where people trust you to really not hold back, to really give you their thing. And on, you know, on a day where maybe their voice isn't quite right um, or you make some sort of wild suggestion that they sing it in a different way or you kind of figure out, you know, the difference between someone who, you know, everybody likes to be coached differently. Like some people you got to stay on them and you got to, you know, be vigilant and, and like, no, you're being lazy or you got to do that. Uh, some people you, you recognize the minute they walk in the door, we're not going to get it today. Let's yeah. not even, you know, let's just go to a movie, you know, let's, yeah. you know, um, but it's recognizing all of those types of things. So it's, it is very intimate as a relationship. And the one thing, you know, it's funny because nowadays you don't really have to have soundboards so much. You know, you can do it in your laptop. You can do record a lot of different things. But the one thing I enjoy about an actual soundboard or at least some sort of uh, surface like that is when you lean on the board and the artist leans on the board with you and has that conversation where they're telling you their deepest thoughts and their deepest feelings and in my mind, when that's happening, I'm always formulating a song idea or a, mm. you know, um, but it has to be comfortable for that artist to open up like that. Yeah. And uh, it's so it's wonderful. So for Janet, in that case, I mean, when we started off with Janet and I always talk about foundation, the foundation with Janet and us was she came to Minneapolis and for four or five days, we didn't even go to the studio. You know, we rode around the lakes we went to movies, we went to the clubs, we went, we hung out. And then she said, when are we going to start working? And we said, oh, we're working. And we showed her the opening lyrics to Control. Wow. You know, when I was 17, I did what people told me, did what my father said and let my mother mold me. And when she looked at the lyrics, she said, this is what we've been talking about. We said, yeah. And she said, so whatever we talk about, that's what we're going to write about? I said, yeah. Life. It was like a light bulb went off. It was like, oh, bing. Man. She was like, oh, well, I want to talk about this and I want to talk about this. And it opened her up to to be, you know, it set her on the path of who she became, which yeah. is, and I, and I always said, you know, to people, because she didn't do a lot of interviews. And I said, you don't need to interview her. Whatever she's thinking is all on her records. Mm. So 
that was always the key to doing that. And we really do that with all the artists, but Janet was probably the one that was most noteworthy. And also because we had a chance to do the whole album yeah. on those. Yes, yes. And really shape what it was. So it wasn't about coming in and trying to get a hit single or trying to do that. It's just like, just do a body of work. Yeah. And we'll see what, you know, raises its hand and goes, hey, I'll go first. Right. You know? So. And she probably felt so comfortable for, with you already, especially even in the beginning, because you were just listening as you were letting go together. She and was fun. never, well, she was never, right, because she didn't realize we were working. She didn't yeah. realize that, that as we were just hanging out, we were learning about her and yeah. trying to figure out what the approach would be. Um, so that was really important. But also, but even bringing her to Minneapolis was huge. Yeah. Because, you know, she wasn't, you know, she didn't have the comfort of, you know, bodyguards and limos and all of that kind of stuff. It was like we got her a Chevy Blazer. We had a, a friend named Ruth that worked at the Chevy dealer. And she would just give us cars, you know, when artists would come into town. And I said, we need like a Chevy Blazer. And she said, okay. And this is before GPS. Yeah. So literally it was like a Thomas guide. <laughs> and you have to get from the hotel to the studio. You have to get to the studio to, you know, Blockbuster Video or wherever you met back in that day when you were renting videos and all that. Right. Or, or to the sushi place you like or, you know, whatever. I mean, it, and so she, as she's writing about this, taking control of her life, she's actually living a life of self-sufficiency. Yeah. Where she has to get herself around. She has to drive herself places. She has to get herself out of, you know, nasty came because she was in, we were at the club and these guys were, you know, talking to her very nastily and she didn't like it. And people were saying to us, why don't you go over and help her? And we're like, well, we keep an eye on her, but she'll figure it out. Yeah, like, we're writing a song right now as we're. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, so that that was kind of the thing. And, and so it's a relationship that's grown to, you know, she's the godmother of my oldest son. Um, amazing. Our, you know, our relationship is, is amazing. And, you know, we talked about, um, one of the things we talked about toward the beginning, we, we were, we were talking about um, longevity and all that kind of yeah. stuff. It's interesting because Peter Asher, uh, I remember sitting behind him at the Grammys and Peter at that time had worked with Linda Ronstadt for like 20 years. And I remember we were, I think maybe our second time nominated for producer of the year. And um, I said to him, I said, Mr. Asher, I said, I just, I really admire the fact that you've been with uh, Linda Ronstadt for so long in, is there a secret? Because we just started working with Janet, but we'd love to have a 20-year relationship with her. Yeah. And he said, well, here's the thing. He said, artists like to kind of veer around a little bit. And he said, and you kind of let them do it, but what you want to just be is sort of the guardrails mm. for them. When they're going a little too far, far over here, you just kind of nudge them back a little bit. No, kind of on the road. And that was the thing that was funny about Linda because Linda was doing, you know, she'd do a rock album, then she'd do a country album, then she'd do a, a big band record and then she'd do you know a latin record and then she'd do like she was all over the place but he was the common denominator for all of those records yeah and i just liked his 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 wisdom and knowledge on that it isn't exactly how he put it but that's the way i took it right and as we look back with janet where we're almost 40 years in with her yeah um his advice was very sage wow and as janet would go I, I want to bring in an opera singer on this uh, song, or I want to do a rock song, or I want to, um, you know, I want to get Chuck D on a song, yeah. or you know what? Because the collaborators weren't the normal collaborators that you would think that someone would have, right? Um, and just all the kind of sweep of music that she's done, um, it's it's just a matter of trust and and a matter of being open and just kind of being that person to guide guide back to. 
you know, let them do what they want to do, but just kind of guide them in a way. So it was good advice that, that uh, he gave me. When you're in the studio, first of all, as a drummer, these beats and these breaks and these fills that you do on the drum machine that yeah. it's like, you're clearly not sequencing. You're clearly performing. Yeah. It's a, it's definitely a performance. That's the way, that's the way I look at it. It sounds, you can hear the performance. It sounds yeah. like a drum set, but it's, I mean, but it's not, it's, it's yeah. And are you guys <laughs> screaming like as you're tracking it? Cause there's so much energy. There's so much heat. There's so many ooh moments with with the breaks and where the beat drops or comes in or comes out. Are you guys just hyped and smiling in the studio all the time when you're and are you clowning people sometimes with these with these drum parts? Well, it's it's funny and and that's a great way to put it. I've I've not really heard someone articulated like that, but yes, it, the difference was even though it was a drum machine on a lot of stuff. Yeah. It was a performance. Yeah. Um, nothing was ever locked to, to, uh, to simply code or anything like that. It was like, literally I would put two or three, four different programs in the machine. And then as it was going down, I would just change them. <laughs> and then if I wanted to add a little break or a little, uh, uh, you know, Tom fill or a little thing, I would just play it live as it was going down. So it was a performance. Yeah. And then we would, um, then in the tracking of the instruments, the keyboards and all that other stuff, if there was something weird that happened on the drums, I would try to figure out a, a horn lick or some sort of little synthesizer, something that went with it, so that you would have sort of ear candy moments that wouldn't happen all through the song, but just for certain parts of yes. the song. Um, but that's that's an interesting observation. But yeah, it was like a performance. That's the way we treated it. And and Terry was always, and Terry would be the one for me because I did uh, most of the bulk of the drum programming. Yeah. And Terry would always say to me, Jam, you know, hit that little thing or, you know, or he'd be like, fuck it up now, fuck it up now a little bit. And it'd be like, okay, okay, you know. So it'd be like, you know, he would always tell me to do those kinds of things. Um, one of the funny ones, I was thinking about it the other day because New Edition was, uh, we, we went on the road, not on the road with New Edition, but we went and saw some of their shows. And if it is in love, the break that happens in that song yeah. where it goes do 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 all that. Yep. That break happened because uh the guy who uh, choreographs, when we were creating the song, he was in the studio and he said, Then give me some stuff that I can choreograph some stuff to. And we were like, Oh, okay. Dude. And so we put the little break in there and he heard it and he said, Oh yeah, I got that. And so if you watch the video. When those breaks happen and there's a little kind of little moves that they do. Yeah. That's why that happened like that. Man, it makes sense. Yep. It totally makes sense. It's written for it. Yep. Wow. Yeah. He was thinking about the performance. What would the performance be of the song? And people love, you know. All those little standout moments that you guys put in your production is the moment. I mean, it's the thing that gets me, the listener, just excited, right? Hyped, attention grabbing, brings you back in. You don't know what's coming next. It's the ear candy. It's like, it's probably what gets artists so excited too. We, it's interesting because there's layers of stuff that we do. Uh, there's layers uh, of things that we do that, that I, I feel like nobody's going to hear, but we kind of do it to please ourselves. Yeah. Right. But one of those things is, this is kind of a weird one, but, um, and two people have now articulated to me that they hear it. So there's a song that we did with the SOS band called No One's Gonna Love You. And it's my favorite SOS band song we've ever done just because of the the mood of the song is just so, it's just so perfect to me. It's like just, 
not that the song's perfect, but just that the mood of the song is perfect, mm-hmm. right? And it was one of those things where when I when I recorded the keyboard part for the song, it was on OB8 synthesizer. And I remember I wanted a part to just kind of hold, but then I was doing the chords and I was doing the bass line. And it's one of those things, once again, I'm doing it all at one on one thing, right? And on yeah. one track. And so what happens is, if this makes sense, I'm literally holding with my pinky, I'm holding a note down, and then I'm doing the chords in the bass line like this. So I love the way it sounded because it's subtle. It doesn't sound like you're doing it, but it just makes this kind of subtle kind of pad, right? I had two people literally in the same week about maybe a year and a half ago say the same thing to me. It was Maxwell and it was uh, Sean from Boys to Men. And they both said to me, that song, No One's Gonna Love You. And I said, yeah. What was up with that one part that just holds and it goes, and that's all it does. And I said, oh, you hear that? And it's like, yeah. And both of them were, I was shocked. I was like, you guys both hear that? And they said, yeah. And I said, so I played it for him and I said, this was the thing. So the other day, uh, or not the other day, but a little while back, I was with Mike Dean. Yeah. And Mike Dean, we were over at uh, at Rosen's, and um, I was showing him the patch at C7 on an OB8, but I was showing him the patch in the way that I did it, and he was like, oh, that's how you, that's why it sounds like that. But it's just one of those things. It's like, I, it wasn't really thought. It was just because I was just trying to incorporate a bunch of things on in two hands without doing a bunch of overdubs. Right, right. So I just was kind of doing, holding the note, but then doing the chords and the bass all at the same time. So sometimes those things happen and people go, oh, that's genius. And it's not genius. It's just like, no, I'm just trying to figure out how to get it down. You're just tapping into using, the moment. I'm yeah. just trying to get it down. Back then, you know, you're limited to 24 tracks. So it yeah. wasn't like, well, we can just spread stuff across three or four tracks. It's like, no, if I can get all this on one track, I'm going to I'm gonna do it like that, you know? What about the ending drum fill on Scream? Oh, what is he, what is that? Oh, that's right. The, the yeah, the did, 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 oh yeah, scream was crazy. <laughs> it sounds like a live arrangement drum fill that yes. you would go see if 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 yes if Michael was or if Janice playing it still whatever if it's like a modern it's day a, live kind of music direction arrangement. It's a, it, yeah, it's a it's a combination of stuff. Scream was interesting because I remember when Michael said, you know, would you come up with some stuff? I want to do a duet with my sister. Yeah. And I remember we had Janet come to Minneapolis. She said, what do you need me to do? And I said, just be in the room. I just need the inspiration. Yeah. Because Janet is so inspiring. Let's go. All right, everybody. We're going to pause right there, and we're going to cut this episode into two parts. Hope you enjoyed part one. Part two is about to come at you, so make sure to subscribe if you're watching us on YouTube or if you're listening on Spotify, Apple, wherever you are, please follow. Part two is incredible. We get into Michael Jackson, Janet Jackson, producing and writing Scream, balancing uh, their camps and their personalities and their relationship together, vocal producing Michael and Janet, and we go deep into Prince and the rest of Jimmy Jam's career. So make sure to subscribe and follow. And part two of the Jimmy Jam interview is coming at you. Go! (laughs) Go!